Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Today's episode is going to be the final episode in a short string of episodes I've been doing that are looking at the normative implications of what's going on in contemporary American and, to some degree, British politics. In this episode, to close that out, we're going to be looking at reforming institutions, which is something I've been an advocate for for a long time, and it was great to get someone on who has literally written the book on this. Now, before we get to any of that, it would be remiss of me if I didn't make note of the last episode I did, the solo episode on activism and elites within the Democratic Party. Got a lot of really interesting responses, and I'm really grateful for everyone who writes me or comments on my stuff on Twitter. And I did try to get back to everyone, but a lot of the comments were quite sophisticated, and obviously, you know, Twitter and so on has its limits, although I did end up writing some quite long Twitter threads. I think it might be one of those episodes where at some point it's worth my time to try and go back and do an episode just answering questions that arose from that episode in the same way as I did with the economic inequality episode. I also have to say maybe there's something wrong with how I set it up or explained that, because a lot of people took me to be saying things that I really didn't mean to be saying there. And so I think if people did misunderstand it in some ways, then the faults on me in that maybe I could have set it up or explained it better, but both for the people who were sort of taking away the message I intended, and people who took away a completely different message, it seemed to be something that really struck a bone, and that people responded to in a very emotional way, and I don't mean that as a bad thing at all. I prefaced the episode by saying, this is an episode about emotion. And I think that's valid and something we should think and talk about. So I'm not going to be able to respond to everything here, but I did just want to sort of make a few notes that were arising from that. So if you just want to get straight to today's guest and talking about what I call constitutional hardball or probably more correctly soft institutional reform, feel free to go ahead and skip ahead about five to ten minutes. Just for now, though, if you are interested in that episode, one thing people asked me, which kind of caught me off guard a little, is they sort of said, oh, are you investing in the Bernie or Bust movement now? And no. Um, I've always been really clear that while, like I said in that episode, I find a lot of the anger and the frustration that motivates the Bernie movement understandable and to some degree justifiable. I think you can take that anger and do useful or not so useful things with it. And in many ways what I was trying to do with that episode was to try and produce a genealogy, a genealogy of that anger to sort of, to someone who's on the outside of it and doesn't get why the emotion within that movement runs so deep. I was trying to produce in many ways an explainer for people coming from the outside as to where this is coming from. Now, if you're on the inside of that, I guess it could have sounded like I was fully validating 
that narrative, which I wasn't. I was saying I think it's understandable that people are upset, and here's the structural dynamics that are leading people to feel this way. But the solution to that is, as I argued in the episode, a reconciliation of the elites and the activists in the party. And the blame for the fact that there hasn't been a a reconciliation falls on both sides, and as I argued, probably more so on the side of the elites. But that doesn't justify tacitly supporting a fascistic precedent. And I've always been really clear on this. Um, So the whole podcast, you know, from the beginning, I've made this argument. And if you follow me on Twitter, I've clashed with Bernie or Busters, if that's the collective noun for them, many times. So much to the annoyance of many of my followers, in fact, who subscribe to that. But my, my position is quite simple. I think it's wrong on a strategic and on a moral level. On a strategic level, if the idea is something like, we need to withhold our votes so that Democrats recognise that they're only going to win if they move sufficiently to the left, um, I think that's just not a great strategy. I think the potential gains that we might get from that are very uncertain. I think if you look at the empirical literature, that's just not really how political parties make decisions, and the potential harms that run from that are catastrophic. So we're putting a hell of a lot up on the table, we're risking a hell of a lot for something that's very, very uncertain. And I think what underpins that argument is this idea, and I've been sort of talking to people online and via email about this, that there really is no difference between centrist, or as they call it, corporate Democrats, and Republicans. And that's just wrong. And it's just empirically wrong. So there are a dozen issues on which even your most abjectly compromise-driven Democrat is clearly distinct from even your sort of most quote-unquote reasonable Republican, and certainly when you're living in the age of the Trump presidency. So just to give one example, the DACA repeal that happened early in the Trump presidency, no Democrat would have done that. None of them would have. And that's not in virtue of Democrats being particularly noble or caring particularly deeply about that community. They might or might not. Some do, some don't. Maybe most don't. It's just a symptom of the fact, it's a consequence of the fact, that Democrats have different incentives. They have different shareholders. The structures they operate in point them in different ways. And I find it very, very difficult to believe that a President Hillary Clinton would have done that. I I would almost bet my life that she wouldn't have. And that's a difference that makes a difference. There are hundreds of thousands of wonderful young people who want to participate in and contribute to America, who we should be welcoming with open arms, who now have had, I mean, I don't know how this will end, it's still going through the courts, but now have their the entire rest of their lives, their entire futures, thrown into question. And the fate, their fate, is something that's worth an hour of our time every few years to show up and vote for. It is. 
It really just is. And if you don't think it is, I don't know what to tell you. We just have a difference of morality. And that's one issue. There's a dozen on which there's things this administration has done that probably most Republicans would have done and no Democrat would have done. So there just is a difference there that's worth caring about. And, you know, you can say all you want, yes, but neither the centrist Democrats or the Republicans support my position on healthcare or foreign policy or so on. And, yeah, that's true, but that doesn't, that doesn't make them equivalent, right? I think there is a coherent position, indeed this is my position, that feels endlessly frustrated and disappointed that the Democrats don't stake out a clearer position for themselves and, as will be the theme of today's episode, don't really go out and fight for it in a way that Republicans do, while recognising that there is all the difference in the world between Democrats as abject as they are sometimes and Republicans. If you think they're the same, I really just don't know what world you're looking at, and that's something I've argued against with a lot of people, both guests and people online, and it might be worth an episode on its own, because there just is a difference. The The other point is a more moral one, and this is a more intuitive argument, so either you're going to grasp the intuition behind this, you know, or it just won't appeal to you, but there's just part of my political DNA which I think comes from family and folk and sort of community pathways from the UK as just sort of a sort of residual generational instinct as part of the British socialist left that resistance to fascism is non-negotiable. That we, you know, that we can have a range of other commitments which we can disagree on, but that when there is something fascistic emerging in your society, you do everything you can to resist it. And that someone who won't kind of isn't on your team, and that you should look on them with distrust. And that is ultimately where I'm coming from on this. Now, I'm not saying that Donald Trump is the morally consequentialist version of Hitler. What I am saying is a number of the rhetorics to which he appeals, and his supporters appeal, and people who he has empowered in his administration, or just more broadly culturally empowered, a number of those rhetorics are distinctly fascist. Right? Now, thankfully, they're limited to the extent that they can carry them out. But, you know, we, we as Chris Armitage said in my interview with him, look, we have children in cages right now. We have a president who talks about the press as enemies of the people. It is correct to be a little bit alarmed by this. And my view is that we should be doing whatever we can to resist that, to resist those forces coming to power, and if they are in power, to remove them from power as quickly as possible. And if the most effective way to do that is to vote for a Democrat who I think is cowardly, then yes, that, that's just a small price to pay for me. That sort of feeling of, you know, dirty hands that I'm putting my ex next to someone who I don't align with fully. That's just a very, very 
trivial moral instinct to me compared to the moral instinct that we have a duty to resist fascism. So, so that's sort of my opinion on that. Now, in saying that, that set of arguments and intuitions, I think, can coexist quite easily with the knowledge, the realisation that many of the sort of activist class, as I called them in the Democratic Party, have many legitimate frustrations and have righteous grievances, you know? I think those two things can both be true at once. I think they are. And so there's nothing I really want to retract from my episode. I just want to make it clear that me empathising with that anger and that frustration isn't to agree with every direction that that anger and frustration has been taken. And one point which I said in the episode, but I think is worth repeating, is my model of this class dynamic is quite similar to many of the models that people on that side of it take. Here's my difference. I view the activist class, as I called them, the sort of million or so Americans who regularly give their labour, either voluntary or paid, to the Democratic Party, as quite distinct from sort of popularism or like what the base of the Democratic Party wants as a whole. Because as we've seen, and as we talk about in this episode, you know, Democratic primary voters are often quite moderate. And at least if you believe polling, are often willing to give priority to compromise over standing up and being combative and fighting for your values. And we talk about why that might be in this episode. So, yes, there is a legitimate frustration on the part of activists within the Democratic Party, but it's a mistake to think that they speak for the entire electorate or even the entire primary electorate of the Democratic Party, and their needs are not the same, right? The ultimate goals of, you know, making sure that we get our guy in in the primary are not the same as what will ultimately serve the population, and I think that's important to say. The final thing that people said to me, and I've heard this before, um, and it made me feel quite bad, actually, in a way, is they said they found my analysis almost unbearably depressing. And I think part of that is that people have this false equivalence in that they don't see getting mainline Democrats in as something worth fighting for, and so they're just reconciled to everything's going to stay as, as it is, as unjust as it is, forever, and there's nothing we can do. But more generally than that, it has been a feature of the stories I've tried to tell in my solo episodes that I say this is a story that might not have a happy ending. It might, it might not, but it's not, it's not promised to us. It's not guaranteed to us. And that's just sort of a fairly direct consequence of my ultimate epistemic underpinnings to how I think about things. It's sort of a fairly natural consequence of my philosophy and the sort of frameworks which I bring to analysing the social and political worlds. And, you know, you could call that pessimistic, but a lot of people have said they, they find it, they find themselves so depressed that they can barely even bring themselves to 
talk about it. And I certainly feel bad if I've been contributing to feelings of hopelessness, which I do not doubt for a minute are genuine, right? I, I know people feel this stuff very intensely. And perhaps I can sometimes be too cavalier and just and talk about my theories and my stories and, and sort of lose track of how bound up in them people are. I guess here's ultimately where I'm coming from, in that I think we've had this sort of rallying cry forever of, come on, just a bit more organising, another push, we can't give up now. This sort of, like, jingoistic approach to politics on the left, which I just find deeply unsatisfying. And when you look at the, the sort of intellectual premises that underlie it, they're just hopeless. Like, this isn't an intelligent analysis of the world. Here's, here's what this looks like to me, honestly. And I'm going to use a military metaphor here, which might be a little bit dangerous. But here's what the sort of ideological competition and the sort of organising and activism competition looks like to me in America right now. It looks a lot like the First World War. You know that period in the middle of the First World War? where it was just trench warfare, and you had these two sides dug in, um, spending huge amounts of lives and time and energy and money, you know, to, to, to maybe move a few feet either way. And the fundamental contours, you know, were hardly moving at all. This is a more recent thing. American politics was very, very fluid in, say, the 70s or something like that. But now what it looks like is we're throwing generation after generation of idealistic young people who want to get involved and want to make a difference in the world and really have that drive and energy and passion and just throwing them into this meat grinder that takes all of that and utilises it essentially to just maintain a holding pattern. In the same way as the great powers of Europe, obviously in a much more consequential way, were taking the lives of all of these young people and just throwing them into a meat grinder that at best, you know, moved the location of these trenches by a few miles. Now, obviously, it's much worse to be throwing away human lives than it is to be throwing away idealism or hard work or something like that. But that doesn't mean we should completely trivialise the latter. I think it's very serious, and I hope I conveyed this seriousness, that so much of the energy of activists seems to be completely wasted, right? And just like you had the generals in the First World War saying, come on, men, one more push, you know, let's do one more big push, and this is the one that's that's going to make a difference, and, you know, we'll be in Berlin by Christmas, and never mind that the past 12 of these big pushes didn't work, this is the one. Every time the left loses, we get this patronising spiel about, well, we lost this time, but you can't give up hope. We just need to keep organising and keep fighting. 
And just like in the First World War, doing the same thing and expecting a different result is, by the old cliché, the definition of madness, right? The solution isn't that we need to energise all the men for another big push, it's that we need to reformulate our military strategy, right? And this is again where I said our elites have more accountability than our activists, although our activists have certainly behaved in counterproductive ways for which they hold some responsibility, but ultimately our elites have not thought their way out of this sort of ideological trench warfare that we're locked into. Now, to some extent, you can sympathise, just as to some extent, you can sympathise with the generals of the First World War. They're just doing what they've always been trained to do. And to get out of it, to get out of this, like, ridiculous counterproductive situation, they're either going to have to just surrender, which isn't really an option, or they're going to have to invent a new form of warfare of which nobody at the time had previously conceived. And they do, eventually. You can argue it takes them too long, but how long would it have taken you if you didn't know that tanks and combined arms warfare were a thing? right? But they do. And the way they eventually win is by just reconceptualizing it in a different way. And once they realize that, you know, it's not these big pushes across the whole line, you punch holes through with tanks and then exploit them and open up gaps with infantry, the, what the Germans in the Second World War would call Blitzkrieg. That's how you win, right? And then it wasn't a matter of just pouring in more lives. It was a matter of just changing the strategic parameters and your conceptualization of what it is that you think you're doing. In a similar way, we can have some sympathy with the people who've been leading the Democratic Party. They're just doing what they've been trained to do. They came of age, what, in the Clinton years, maybe, in which you know, compromising, consensus, that sort of model, it worked. It won elections. And now, like the generals of the First World War, they just keep on throwing more and more bodies, or in this case, idealistic young people who are going to get burnt out and become disillusioned, into the fray. And we, all of us, including those of us on the far left, we don't have a better strategy either. As I say in this episode, the Bernie strategy is just use the bully pulpit. Well, that's going to work about as well for him as it did for Obama. You might think it'll do better, but it won't. So both the far left and the centre are sort of committed in this very First World War kind of way to just more energy, just more activism, just more of, the, more of what we did before. And likewise, you can have some sympathy, but at some point, you've got to stop saying just another push. At some point, you need to have a different strategy. And that brings us quite nicely to today's episode. What can we be doing differently? Because I think there are obvious answers on the table. Now, I should say, that I think at some point I need to do an episode just on this question of political pessimism, because when I wrote the original script to my Activism and Elites episode, I actually included a section on how you reconcile political feelings of hopelessness with 
personally feeling happy and okay with yourself? And I think that's a really interesting and complicated question that hasn't got enough attention. Now, I cut it because the episode had already gone on for two hours, um, but then maybe it ended on a disappointing note. Maybe it needed that uplift at the end to make sense of it all. So at some point I'll try and get to that. But to, to round out the metaphor I was perhaps unsuccessfully trying to make, I do think we are in a sort of cultural and organising and ideological equivalent of, like, trench warfare right now. It hasn't always been that case, and it needn't always be that case. And to just look at the object-level facts is depressing. Yes, we are largely wasting the idealism and energy of a lot of young people. We are. Now, there's two ways you can look at that. One is that that, as an object-level fact, is dispiriting. It really is. The other is that it doesn't have to be that way. We can think our way out of this, and we can realise that the problem is ultimately the frameworks with which we're conceptualising the conflict and the strategies that we're employing as a result of that. And, you know, this is what we're going to talk about in this episode. So there's two ways you can think about what we're going to present here. One, it's depressing because we're saying this is what Democrats would need to do to win, and they're not. Neither the progressives nor the centrists are doing what we're going to recommend. The other is, here's what you need to do, right? Here's what we could be doing, and here's what we should be demanding from our politicians. So with that as a very long sort of preamble to this. Let's get going into today's episode. My guest today is David Varis. He's an Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University and is the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. He is a frequent contributor to Informed Comment and his work has appeared in the Chicago Sun-Times, the Christian Science Monitor, and Indie Weekly. As you'll hear, we agree about basically everything, so I throw in a few devil's advocate comments to just try and get that going, but this really is, I think, at least part of the change in strategy that we need to adopt on the left if we want to start to win. So, without any further preamble, let's get straight to it. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think we took, you know, the history, the what's going on right now, and what needs to be happening, and we had a really wide-ranging chat around this central theme. And, you know, if this isn't something you haven't, you, you've not thought about a lot, I really hope it changes your mind, because I'm completely sincere in my belief in this. So, yeah. Without any further preamble, it is my absolute pleasure to bring you Constitutional Hardball with Professor David Farris. joined today by Professor David Farris. Professor, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's great to be here, Toby. Thanks for having me. So, just by way of introduction, um, 
who, well, I mean, obviously you're a professor who teaches politics, but what are the sorts of things that interest you and you like to think and read and write about? Um, I mean, I think I've, I've always been most interested in sort of the practice of democracy um, and how sort of the institutions of democracy sort of structure outcomes, um, you know, sort of structure the political system, um, and then and sort of the different configurations that you can arrive at in terms of, uh, you know, the, the political party systems, uh, you know, electoral systems and things like that. Um, I actually used to study the Middle East um, until until quite recently, until about 2015, 2016. Um, so I have a sort of parallel interest in, in authoritarianism and, and transitions to and from democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, that's that's primarily what I read and, and teach about is, uh, you know, elections, institutions, um, and, and some a healthy dose of comparative politics in there, too, um, which I think also informs some of the work that I do. So I've been meaning to have you on for a while because the sort of essential thesis of fighting dirty is something um, I've been preaching for a while now. And perhaps even before we get into that, we should say a few lines about how we sort of reach this point where our democracy, particularly if you're viewing it from a left-wing perspective, can feel so frustrating and that, like, nothing happens and nothing is possible within it um, before we even get to what you're recommending. I tell you what, I'll I'll start you off. Let me give you a very simple narrative, and this isn't anything original to me or sophisticated. This is just sort of comparative government 101 about sort of what led us to this spot. And so, like, just very quickly, like, the question gets asked, why has the US not developed or not developed to the same extent as other advanced nations uh, welfare state institutions? Why do we not have some form of universal health care provision almost uniquely? Um, Why have we not been able to take action on X, Y, Z issues? And there's a number of different narratives you can run and there's I think, truth to a lot of them. It doesn't reduce to a single thing. But a big one that people often miss, and again, this is just political comparative government 101, is our institutions are different. We have a federalised system where you need buy-in on both the state and local level. On the national level, you know, it has to pass Congress, the Senate, it has to be approved by the President, it has to survive repeated court challenges. And so just the number of people who can say no to any individual proposed reform is much higher, and therefore it's much easier to block. Now, that's one thing to deal with if you're living in a political culture that's driven by consensus, in which there's not strong partisan divides, in which votes from the other side are possible, which is sort of the culture that seems to make sense with our institutions. But if you're living in a strongly partisan two-teams political culture and the other team has resolved to just block anything on pure principle, it makes it virtually impossible to do anything within our system. I'll pause there. Is there anything you want to add on to that narrative or correct within it? No, I mean, I think that that's that's probably the story of why the United States lacks uh, certain certain social goods that I think people in European democracies take for granted. Um, you, you know, particularly in the last 20 years, I mean, I, I think going back to the Bush administration, I think we've only had, you know, three or four significant 
laws passed in this country that that have that have had real impact. Um, and that's I think a, I think that's a much lower ratio than you would see in a in a continental European democracy where the party in power controls all of the levers of government. You know, um, in in the United States we have this. You know, we have a setup that, that frankly, no, I think, political institutional designer would recommend to anyone anymore, um, which is which is presidential democracy, where you have these staggered elections and different parties can control different branches of the government. Um, and it means that, that when you win an election, um, even if you even if you win Congress and the presidency, you know, the clock is ticking. You have like 18 months to accomplish something. Um, and then generally you, you kick back a branch of government to the other side. Um, two years later, and then and then you just have this sort of like infinite policy stasis um, that at this point is just getting resolved by by policy making out of the executive branch. Um, I, I also think that I mean, if you go way back to uh, the sort of the New Deal era, um, I think that there were certain certain compromises made with uh, with Southern Democrats to get pieces of the New Deal passed um, that left uh, other Americans, particularly minorities, out of the equation, and I, I think um, also closed off paths to something like national health care. You know? um, so I think we have the, also this unique history of uh, you know, structural racism and, and, and apartheid in the U.S. South up until the 1960s um, that have interfered with a politics of um, sort of Social unity um, and, and sort of the, the idea of, uh, of of commonality um, that that you have sort of white Americans. Uh, I think I'm not even sure this is like controversial, right? But like I think mean, there's a there's a large segment of white America that seems unwilling or unable to extend social benefits to African Americans and other minorities to the point where they'd rather just go without them at all, um, right. rather this... than give them, yeah. It's this perverse thing where, I mean, and this is fairly empirically demonstrated at this point, like white Americans will not want something that they recognise as a social good for themselves if black Americans also get it. Right, and whatever it is um, becomes sort of stigmatised with, um, you know, hallucinatory uh, uh, stereotypes about about African Americans, right? Um, and so... Um, you know, I think that actually plays a really significant role um, in the sort of the, the way that the United States lags behind um, other major democracies and the sort of the, the level and quality uh, of public goods that we provide to our citizens. Um, and it's really, uh, it's really a tragedy, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but I, I'm, I guess I'm mildly optimistic in the sense that I think for the first time in American history, you have the forces of sort of economic progress mostly aligned with the forces of racial progress um, in a political party, um, which means, in theory, sometime within our lifetime, <laughs> we could see a coalition come to power that's dedicated to both of these things at the same time, um, which is, I don't think has ever happened before. And the, but the story of how we reached this particular pass also involves race, because... The, the institutions we have, in my head, make sense under a particular political culture in which there aren't strong parties, people in particular regions elect people to represent those regions, and then everyone sort of comes together and compromises the sort of idealised American political culture that still persisted in things like the West Wing, right? That would make sense with our institutions, but what's happened is 
our politics has become more partisan, and that's not this weird, nasty, negative thing. Partisanship isn't terrible, necessarily. Um, But the reason for that is race, in that we finally completed a political realignment that's been going on since, what, at least the Civil Rights Act, if not the sort of FDR and Truman administrations, which is if you have a strong white Southern identity, that has gone from being solidly Democrat to, over a long period, contested between the parties, and now finally, over the last, what, 20 or even just 10 years, has become fully aligned with the Republican Party. Conversely, if you're someone who's going to be bothered by racism or concerned by it, you've now probably drifted out or self-sorted out of the Republican Party and into the Democratic Party. So even a generation ago, you had people who sort of cross the the, the partisan divide and the sort of um, divide with respect to attitudes towards racial issues cross-cut each other. And so you had a sort of like almost like a Venn diagram, like a variety of different um, types of Republican and types of Democrat that were available. And the whole thing seemed a lot more congressional in culture. And now um, demographic and sort of fundamental identity is just directly aligned with partisan identity. And you just have a much more direct, you know, this is who I am and fuck the other guys type of politics, which would be fine, or it would be, you know, something, if we had institutions that were capable of delivering decisive outcomes. Because if you have two teams, then it makes sense that the team that wins gets to rule, and then they're held accountable to it, like it would work, say, in the UK. But it doesn't make any sense to have that two-teams culture if you have institutions that are designed to slow everything down and force everything to compromise. Because if you only have two teams, people are only accountable to their team, and there's no incentive to compromise. I'll, I'll pause again there. Did that narrative make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, the political scientist uh, Alan Abramowitz tells this story really well in a book called The Great Alignment, um, which is the story of um, that sort of consensus era of the 50s, 60s, and 70s collapsing into the, the sort of the two-partyism of today, where, you know, as you said, everyone has sort of self-sorted into the you know, quote-unquote correct party based on their underlying ideology. I mean, I think it's really interesting to note that some of the state legislatures in the Deep South didn't fall into Republican hands until this century, you know, until the like 2008, 2010, 2012. Um, and so the, the sort of the partisanship of the Democratic Party as it once was in the South, um, so it took like, decades for people to let that go um, and to align themselves with the with the Republican Party, which more closely represented, I think, their ideology um, and their sort of, you know, uh, the interests of themselves as a, you know, as, as a white ethnicity. Um, but I think that the U.S. political system is, I think it is purposely designed um, to require constant compromise um, and consensus building within these institutions. Um, and I, I think that the sort of the architects of the Constitution set that up very deliberately. Um, I think that they were delusional <laughs> about, um, about the shape of things to come in terms of party politics. Um, and so they just they just didn't design a system um, that was amenable to, um, to 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 deep partisanship and deep attachment to two parties based on based on ideology. 
I also think, you know, uh, just one last thing is that the, the, this this era of compromise in the 50s, 60s, and 70s gets romanticized a little bit um, in terms of uh, what the underlying basis of that um, of that bipartisanship was, um, and, and really what it was was like a, a compromise within the Democratic Party, um, whereby Southern Democrats provided their votes for most of the important uh, legislation of the 30s to the 60s um, in exchange for the for the national parties were looking the other way um, at the sort of one-party authoritarianism that, that Southern Democrats had constructed for themselves in the, in the South. Um, and so in that sense, I actually think that the era, uh, that this, that this era of bipartisanship and, you know, where you, you see the, the, the scatter plots about how far away uh, ideologically members of Congress were from one another during this period, I, I look at that really as, um, as an unusual aberration in, in, in U.S. history um, in the sense that, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how you would reproduce that kind of ideological closeness between two parties in, in a political system um, without different institutions, frankly. Um, so, yeah, one point I'd make here is that I did a little bit of work on this, actually. I sometimes do just um, solo episodes, so I do just like a presentation. And what okay, I tried yeah. to argue is that... You know, yes, the like you say, this period of consensus can be um, romanticised. But what I tried to argue isn't that, uh, let's call it a congressional model, isn't that that's better or worse per se than what I called a parliamentary model. Um, it's that um, each one involves a number of different assumptions. It's not just one thing. It's not just consensus versus compromise. It's also, for instance, voting for the party versus voting for the individual. It's voting on a national level vo versus voting on a regional level. It's legislation being the result of one party with a governing agenda versus legislation being the result of whatever there's a majority for in Congress at any given time, and there's a few more. And my point wasn't so much it was great back in the day and it's horrible now, or the converse, actually. It's that it's incoherent and that these assumptions if you have all the congressional assumptions working together, that makes sense. And you eat stuff, you know, your quote, get stuff done. And conversely, if you have all the parliamentary assumptions working together, what we have now is a bunch of parliamentary assumptions trying to force their way through congressional institutions, and it just doesn't work. So it's not that one's better or worse, it's that there's an incoherence. And we either have to change our culture or change our institutions. So we either have to go back to the days of compromise, i.e. the sort of what Joe Biden seems to be on about, or we have to do what you're proposing. Now, what's incoherent, I think, is to say that, well, our culture's not going to change, because it isn't, right? But we're somehow <laughs> going to get results that we want out of a system that simply isn't set up to deliver them and has repeatedly failed to deliver them. I think that position, which does seem to be the mainline democratic position, that's just incoherent. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's it's something that it, it's increasingly puzzling to me that National Democrats won't kind of let go of this um, sort of romanticized past of, of bipartisanship. Um, they seem still to be committed to it or committed to the idea of working with Republicans, I think, long past the time where Republicans even even talked about working with Democrats. You know, um, 
And so I think it's part of the culture of the Democratic Party um, that, that simply just has to change over time. Um, and it's, and it's, but it's obviously, it's very frustrating to, to an observer of American politics over the last 20 years to hear somebody like Joe Biden, who, who was in an administration that was, that was thwarted almost at every turn by Republicans who were, you know, incredibly hostile to any kind of compromise, to hear that same guy who was the vice president of that administration um, talk publicly about how, you know, he, he thinks that he can get, you know, he can get to 60 votes in the Senate, um, by, you know, like wielding the magic bipartisanship wand. Um, I just, I, I think that we've moved beyond that. I think that if he is elected, um, he will find that out very quickly. Um, if in fact he believes what he's saying publicly, which is something that I think we should bracket. Um, but I think that, that if he's committed to that kind of bipartisanship, it's, it'll, it'll become obvious within two months of the new administration that it's, that it's simply not going to happen, you know. Well, let's return to the does he actually believe it, because I think that's a really interesting question. But let's, let's return to that. I guess the final piece of this sort of building up the story is how asymmetric it's been. I mean, certainly the Democrats have become more parliamentary in how they operate. And you see that with impeachment. Like, they've, I mean, I think there's been a couple of holdouts, but more or less the party has unified there. It's unified against a lot of the stuff that Trump has proposed. But in many ways, them coming together in a sort of partisan or parliamentary, or however you want to put it way, has just been them trying to catch up with where the Republicans got to a decade or so, or even longer, before, in that if you rewind the clock to Bush, the the Republicans fairly comprehensively unified behind him, and the Democrats were still sort of behaving in this congressional way. And then you, you get to Obama, I think there was just an ideological commitment to compromise with Obama, starting with just him and, like, even just, like, his personality and what sort of a guy he was. And the Republicans were quite straightforward and open that they were not going to work with him on anything. And it took them... It took them a long time to... It took the Democrats a long time to realise that the Republicans were just serious on that. So I'll throw that last one out there, in that there's... When we talk about partisanship... I think it is an error to do a, a sort of false equivalency on this one. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I think if you if you look at Democrats today, um, I do think they are in the process of catching up to Republicans in terms of their, as you put it, their parliamentarism. Um, but they're still not there. I mean, you can see it even in the last month, um, where um, the week that that President Trump was impeached, um, <clears throat> Democrats passed. Uh, the USMCA through Congress, right? which is like something that you could not possibly imagine Republicans doing. Um, that is like, if they were impeaching a Democratic president, they wouldn't be simultaneously cooperating to give the president a kind of a policy victory um, coming out of Congress that, that could easily have waited another year until after the election. Um, and so I still think that there is, um, at least on the Democratic side, uh, it's like they if somebody dangles something in front of them, and they're like, here's something that would really help your constituents, and here's something that would really help, um, you know, the different uh, sort of corners of your party, right? And this one happened to be organized labor, which was very much behind this, this trade deal. Um, and I think Democrats are still much more likely to leap at the chance to reward, um, you know, some group of their core supporters than, than Republicans are, because Republicans, I think, are now just this, like, fully ideological party, um, whereas Democrats still, 
I think, feel really torn where if they're presented with a policy that would make things better. Um, I still think that they're really torn about whether to do that, um, given that that might help the president. Um, and so I, I still think that's a that's a pretty significant difference between the two parties. Um, I think it's changing in terms of the, the center of gravity and the, and the caucus has moved left and I think it's become more combative. Um, but I still think that there's enough moderates and sort of compromise-minded um, members of, of the House and the Senate that, that that element of our politics and that, that asymmetry will be with us for quite some time. I think also, and this is something I wanted to return to, to with you, Democrats are facing just different shareholders and different pressures on them and different expectations from their electorates. Um, let's return to that point. Let's let's get into what are you proposing? You say fight dirty. What does that mean? Sure. Um, I, I think if you just looked at the title of the book, um, you, you, you might sort of misconstrue what I mean by fighting dirty. Um, when, when I look at the American political system, um, what I see throughout actually this whole century um, that we're living through uh, is, a, is a, a, a narrow but significant democratic majority at the national level at most times that has mostly failed to be translated into a democratic governing majority. Um, and, the, and the reasons for that are um, sort of partially baked into the political system itself, but also um, you have a Republican Party that is that has sort of committed itself to violating the spirit and the, and the practice of democracy in order to preserve power. Um, and so fighting dirty, um, in, in the way that I mean it in the book, uh, simply ask Democrats the next time they are in power to use all of um, all of the power that is at their disposal constitutionally to sort of rectify the imbalance in our electoral playing field. Um, and so you can look at different pieces of our political system, you know, the Senate, House, the Supreme Court, um, the electoral system itself, uh, how we structure voting. Um, and you can see that the, 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 so the playing field is tilted, you know, either you know, slightly or, or quite perceptibly to the right in, in ways that empower Republicans as, as what I would call now a political minority um, at the expense of the Democrats, who are, I think, a, a political majority, um, in, in which the, the, so the political system is not translating that um, into actual power. Um, and so I guess the argument of the book is, like, you know, Democrats kind of have to, like, wake up um, and see that they are not fighting on a fair playing field. Right? Before, they start before every we election even, at Before we even get to the next bit, actually, could we spend a minute on just how uneven the playing field is? Because I don't think everyone necessarily, even strong democratic partisans, get how extreme this is. So the Senate is ground zero for this, in that, what's the statistic? Half of the Senate is elected by 16% of the population, and even in the House, Democrats have to maintain, what, something like a 6 or 7 percentage point lead in order to take a majority, and... That division cuts unevenly across different groups. So just to take one example, uh, the vote of a black American accounts for only 75% of the vote of a white American in terms of impact in the House. And it only counts for half when it comes to impact in the Senate, because Senate the Senate gives just crazy disproportionate power to these small white states some of which, like Vermont, are liberal, but the majority of which, like the Dakotas or something, are conservative. And when you look at who votes, who gets 
disenfranchised from voting again there's this incredible bias against um democratic leaning electorates particularly black americans and young americans young americans tend to be quite significantly shut out from this system and there's other things that hold it back but when you factor into that that the republicans only have to hang on to a foothold in one of our multiple institutions you know we have to sweep the board it becomes it, it starts to seem almost impossible yeah i mean you know i mean let's talk let's start with the senate you know um i mean there's a there's a variety of ways of looking at this but i mean i, I think the bottom line um is that because the states uh, are required to be represented equally with two senators um in, in the Senate, you, you, you just have this like built-in possibility for wild dis disproportionality, you know. Um, and so, and it's getting worse, you know. Um, the sort of the patterns of migration internally in the United States mean that the biggest states are are continuing to grow. Um, uh, and so the, you know, the, the gap between Texas and California and like Wyoming and Vermont um, is, is getting larger. It's actually not at the largest point <laughs> um, that it's ever been in our history. Um, but it is getting worse in, in contemporary terms. Um, so if you look at the at the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, um, he was confirmed with the votes of, of senators representing like 44% of the population, and he was opposed by people representing 56% of the population. Um, but that, again, didn't translate into a majority opposing Brett Kavanaugh because of the way that the Senate itself is structured. Um, and so that's, you know, the Senate is one of those things you really can't change in the Constitution. I mean, I've seen a couple of arguments, but I, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't really buy them. Um, it's, it's really baked into the system in a way that can't be changed. Um, and so, you know, my message to Democrats on the Senate, and I, I think this is something that's become sort of the default the position of the party at this point, um, is, you know, you've got to make Washington, D.C. a state, you've got to make probably Puerto Rico a state. In other words, you have to bring more blue states into the union. Um, and uh, it's, it's just it happens to be the case that it's also the right thing to do um, in terms of empowering people that want to be, you know, that need representation in Washington, D.C. Is um, that the default position of the party? I've heard a lot of Democratic senators and so on voice concern about doing that, which I, for the life of me, do not understand. I don't, I no understanding why D.C. shouldn't be a state. No, I, I think, who was it um, last year? I think it was uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, who was, you know, who was like, oh, I don't know, it seems a little unfair, you know, we'd get two more senators, and what would Republicans get? Um, and But he got, he got the kind of smacked down on that pretty, pretty decisively um, by sort of other players in the Democratic universe. And I, I, I do think that there's a majority for D.C. statehood. I'm, I'm less sure um, about Puerto Rico, but I, I do think that there's sort of increasing recognition within the party um, that they're fighting at a structural disadvantage in the Senate. Um, I was looking at this, and I looked at all of the United States, like overseas territories and protectorates, and there's about 14 of them all overall. Um, I was almost tempted to say, why don't we just start going down the list, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, I mean, the, the, the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, I think, would be sort of next on the list after Puerto Rico, um, because they have over 100,000 people. Um, there's, there's nothing in the Constitution that says how many people you need in a territory to become a state, um, and so that I, I would imagine that there's some that there's some sentiment for statehood there too. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's you obviously want to make sure um, that there's buy-in from uh, from the people that live there. You know, like do 
do the people in that territory actually want to be a U.S. state? Would it be beneficial to them? Uh, you, you must give them a chance to vote on it um, in, a, in a sort of fair and transparent process. But but I think if anybody in a, in a territory wants statehood, I kind of frankly feel like we're obligated to give that to them. A lot of these territories were acquired by force, um, sort of with with no input. You know, it's the same thing that happened in Hawaii, right? Um, yeah, if, they're so, if they're subject to Imperium, our Imperium, why shouldn't they have representation in the United States Senate? And if they don't want it, fine, but let's just go down the list, and if there's 11 of them, <laughs> and <Right>. four say <laughs> yes, then then that's eight more Democratic sen- senators. I assume all of these places would vote Democratic, you know? Yeah, you know, I've gotten some interesting emails over the last couple of years, uh, particularly from uh, from citizens of Puerto Rico who are like, look, uh, I wouldn't take Puerto Rico for granted in terms of producing two Democratic senators. It, you know, there's, they have their own party system on the island. Um, you might be a little bit surprised by by the dynamics of how they shake out there. Um, I, I, I'm not super persuaded by those arguments because I think once you craft Puerto Rico onto national American politics in the same way that like Maryland or uh, North Dakota are, I think that you will see the two-party system... <laughs> sort of invade and take over Puerto Rico in the, in the same way that it has the rest but of the country. I, I don't think it would necessarily be a terrible thing if they started sending um, representatives of regional parties in the same way as Scotland now just increasingly sends a block of SMP MPs. They're not votes for Labour, but they would never be votes for the Tories, and they would cut a deal with Labour when it came to it. You know what I mean? So, yeah, sure. You know, th- so these places might end up sending something that's neither a Democrat or a Republican, but when it came down to crunch time, would never side with Republicans. I could see a mechanic like that, and I can't. I don't think that would be the worst thing in the world necessarily, right? I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. I mean, I think the I think I do have concerns about um, crafting a three or four party system onto the existing American electoral and institutional infrastructure. Um, you know, one, one thing that troubles me about the UK experience, like if you, um, like I'm not, I'm not like a deep expert on, on British politics, but I, you know, like everybody in this who teaches comparative government, you know, you have to pay attention to it. Um, like if you go back to the 1950s, you add up the vote share of, uh, of labor and, and the liberal Democrats or their, their prior incarnations, um, you know, they, they get more votes than the Tories in every national election going back to like 1955. Um, but there's, but again, you don't have that governing majority um, because you're splitting the vote in, in individual constituencies. So in that sense, I think a regional party is much more, uh, fits much better in our system than like if you split the left into the Democrats and like a progressive party or something, you know, like that would really, that would really concern me in terms of us ever winning another election. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, coming from the UK, there's, there's a few things to say there. I mean, one is just that is a necessary consequence of the uh, first past the post system. And that like, if you don't like that, which I think there's a variety of good reasons why you shouldn't like it, then really you've got to move to a proportional representation system which then has its own challenges as well i think sometimes people think that if you just move to pr it would solve everything but so you know you exchange one set of problems for a different one the other thing is in the uk i'd say there's all the difference in the world between um 
the SNP, or even the sort of delegation that arrives to us from Northern Ireland, and the Liberal Democrats, because, like you just say, the SNP is regionally concentrated, so by and large, they're not splitting the vote with Labour. Now, when it comes to the Lib Dems, yes, it is true that if the Labour and the Lib Dems could only, like, come together somehow, either by withdrawing candidates in support of each other, or by, like, forming one super party, they would never have lost an election. I think what people miss is they assume the Lib Dems are a liberal party, and that's not necessarily true. I think a lot of the Lib Dem votes, more than people realise, would actually go Tory. Um, a lot of Lib Dem voters... Yeah, if, if the Lib Dems didn't exist would not be voting for Jeremy Corbyn, you know? They might they, they might they they might be the type of person who just always wants to be that dissenting voice saying a plague on both your houses, or they might be Tory. Now I don't know if that I mean we're getting that that's way off topic, but it's 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 not as complicated as it's merely a left wing split. There's actually quite a lot of very um like, think like American libertarians, except not quite as loony, like, like sort of very market-based kind of pro-equal rights, but, like, not a fan of big government-type people in the yeah. Lib Dems. So it's not, it's not as easy as that. Or the right flank of the Democratic Party or something, right? Yeah, um, yeah, the Lib Dems are a really, really, really weird party. That just, there's no American equivalent of that. Like, it doesn't map neatly. Um, no, no, I've, been, I've been struggling to understand them for, for a good 20 years now, so... <laughs> um, in the Labour Party, they call them yellow Tories. Um, okay. <laughs> but, yeah, you're, you're, you're not alone with that. Anyway, let, let's return to the American thing, because I feel we got blown off course there. Um, or I got blown off course, rather, I spent a fair bit of time <laughs> I think I led us. I think I led us off course there, so... <laughs> but... So that's one plank of it, which is add more states. I, for the life of me, don't see what the argument against this is. Now, I understand that there's complications. I understand the internal dynamics in Puerto Rico are quite complex. Uh, But, like, why D.C. should not be a state is beyond me. And if a Democratic senator said, oh, that's not fair, um, what would the Republicans get? They already bloody have two Dakotas, you know? Like, I don't get what the argument is with that one i i always like to say you know if there was a if there was some overseas territory um full of like conservative white people um you know <laughs> they would already be a state you know what i mean like republicans would see that um and, and be like why are we leaving these these potential votes on the table you know um in addition to the fact that i mean like the, the fact that dc is not a state is a, is a real problem for the people that live there. Um, you know, I spent some time in D.C. for the book, and I, I interviewed some activists in the D.C. statehood movement, and it's it's just it's really crazy to have the you know so the budget of the city subject to, to congressional uh, veto. Um, there's all sorts of negative externalities in terms of the criminal justice system, uh, the fact that you don't have representation, uh, voting representation in Congress. Um, there's just I, there's just like no theory of of, of the practice of democracy. That could justify excluding uh, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand Americans um, from, from full representation. It is. It's bigger than Wyoming. It's bigger than Vermont. Uh, it's still growing, so it's actually likely to to eclipse a couple of other states too in the next ten or twenty years. Um, 
so it's just uh, there is no argument, right? The, the only argument is some you know some like ridiculous reading of the Constitution that says like you know the, the framers were worried about corruption, so they 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 really wanted the whole capital district to be uh, under congressional control. Um, but it's just you know it's it's a really spurious argument. I think that, that people make pretty much in bad faith. Um, but there's nothing and, in the Constitution that would stop us making it a state, and we wouldn't even need an amendment. We could just do it by simple majority, right? Uh, I mean, I think so, right? Um, so if you, you know, if you read the language in the Constitution, does require um, there to be a, a, a federal district um, where the where the U.S. capital is, right? Um, but it'd be very easy to just sort of draw a little boundary around, like you know, uh, Congress and the Supreme Court and, um, and and the White House and administer that as a federal entity, and that because nobody, no one lives there, right, aside from the president. Um, at part time at this point, and uh, you know the rest of DC where everyone actually lives. Um, I think it's a relatively uncontroversial reading of the Constitution to say that yes, you could do that with a simple majority. Um, now this is America, right? So there would be a court challenge, I'm sure. Um, but I think a, a reasonable Supreme Court looking at the language of the Constitution and then the way that this will be implemented. It's hard for me to even see this Roberts court ruling against that, although I wouldn't put anything past them. Um, but that, you know, that of course brings us to the courts too. So <laughs> uh, there's is, a whole other piece of this. Which is that I don't think the left gets how big a challenge this court is going to be. Say we retake the White House and even the Senate, Right. Um, which is an optimistic scenario. I think the White House is more likely than the Senate at this point. Um, And there's this debate now on the left, which I find absolutely unfathomable about Medicare for All, and, like, Bernie Sanders supporters getting really worked up with Elizabeth Warren because she said, oh, I'll try and do it in year three instead of year one, and, oh, there's a slight difference in um, how we're going to pay for it of, like, an, I don't even know the details, like an employer tax <laughs> versus a payroll tax. And it's, like, one it's not going to be exactly according to your plan. It's going to be whatever we can wrangle the votes for in Congress. And two, even assuming that we can pull the Democratic Party in line behind this thing and pass it, and that's a big if, it's going to get mangled before this current existing court. Like Obamacare was mangled which is a much, much more moderate reform. Obamacare was mangled by a much more moderate Supreme Court. So a much more aggressive um, expansion of government is arguably just going to get struck down. And if not, they're going to do something to it that's going to severely undermine it. And so the question for me isn't... I mean, we can maybe touch on presidential politics recently, but it's not necessarily who has the, you know, the the best plan on paper or the most ideologically pure plan on paper. I mean, that matters, sure, but it's who would be prepared to pack the court in order to protect these plans, because they will have to do that if they want them to survive. I don't see any other way around it. No, and as you know, I mean, from the beginning of this primary process, I've I've preferred what I hear from Elizabeth Warren about 
sort of institutions and courts to what I hear from Bernie Sanders. Um, but, and I will say, you know, I like Warren too, but I don't think... I think if any of them sort of get it, I think she does, but yeah. she doesn't go far enough, honestly. No, none of them do. I mean, and none of them will, because I think they're all terrified of sounding too radical. I mean, I don't think anyone is going to, none of the candidates are going to endorse court packing in, in public. Um, and I think some of the debates on, in the primary are like, you know, us speculating about what we would do if we won the lottery. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's probably not going to happen. Um, but I do think there's real value um, for the left as a whole and for the Democratic Party as a whole to take the courts much more seriously um, and, and much more ideologically. Um, you, you know, you, you have on the right, you, you have this 40-year-long, very successful plan run out of the Federalist Society to gradually take over the federal court system with a very clear philosophy. Um, you know, uh, you know, originalism, you know, usually when it's convenient, but it is a philosophy. Um, whereas on the left, if you, you know, when you talk about the Supreme Court, um, on the left, it's usually about like two issues, you know, it's about abortion and it's about, you know, the second amendment, um, and hardly anything else of, of any significance ever gets raised in, in democratic circles. When you talk about the Supreme court, they kind I think, of just don't get it. No, they don't get it. Um, they also, I mean, I think it's, you know, in, in fairness to the voters, at least, um, party elites have not remotely advanced any kind of philosophy, uh, of progressivism in the courts, you know, like I've never heard a candidate talk about a living constitution. Um, and that's, you know, that's sort of the, the philosophy of, of a progressive court would be living constitutionalism as, a, as opposed to originalism. And it's like, what really depresses me about this is that it doesn't really seem like the party has even started thinking about how to present that to the public, um, how to mobilize people around it how to explain what that could mean beyond abortion and, and gun rights, which are very important issues, right? But like, there are all kinds of other issues that, that come before the Supreme Court that, that matter, um, that we don't, that we're not able to advance a, a philosophy for, um, you know, things like, uh, you know, a constitutional right to, to equally funded public education. And like, I mean, there's all sorts of things that could happen with a progressive court, which we have not had in my whole lifetime, <laughs> uh, that we just don't talk about. So, I've got, I mean, I've got so many criticisms. I guess I can put it, well, you know what? I've got one big criticism of, like, the, should we say, the more moderate Democrats on this, and one big of the sort of more lefty Democrats on this. So, so basically, I think the entire spectrum of the Democratic Party is, is inadequately communicating on the Supreme Court. Before we even do, just if people haven't heard of this concept, do you want to just break down court packing? What, what do we mean by that? Um, sure. So um, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the gimmicks of the book was to try to convince people that things that we take for granted about our politics, most of them are not actually in the Constitution. OK, so uh, there are nine justices on the Supreme Court. I think that's really uh, sort of structurally embedded in our consciousness that the, that the number is nine, but it's not actually in the Constitution. Um, so the so the political order in the United States does not require a particular number of justices on the court. We just had nine for a long time. Um, and so we assume that's what it is. Um, and in fact, there have been multiple attempts in American history to enlarge or to shrink the court based on political calculations. Um, and, uh, you know, I think infamously, like FDR uh, advanced a court packing plan when he was reelected after 1936, um, and it didn't go anywhere. Um, 
and it's remembered, I think, poorly in the sort of historical consciousness of the country. And so I think there's a real reluctance to, to think about that. But um, court packing as an idea simply means passing a law um, to add justices to the court, to give the, to give the current president the chance to appoint two or three or four or five, whatever the number you want it to be, um, and to add those justices to the court so that you sort of change the political balance of the court. Okay. Uh, as I say in the book, under normal circumstances, I think this is a very bad idea. Um, in other words, sort of reshaping the courts to preserve the power of a of a political party is a sort of a hallmark move of, of sort of proto-authoritarians. So we see it all over the world. In our case, um, I think that there are very special circumstances that make this necessary. Um, one of them is the fact that uh, the way that we structure appointments to the Supreme Court is just, it's like a lottery. Um, and so presidents don't have the right to appoint a certain number of justices throughout their term. I think that's a huge problem. Um, like, for instance, Jimmy Carter got to appoint zero judges to the Supreme Court, um, whereas it looks like if, you know Trump has already had two. Um, if something happens to Ginsburg, he'll have three. If he's reelected, he may have as many as four or five, which is, which is just crazy, right? Um, and if you go back to the year 2000, um, Democrats have won like many, many millions of more votes uh, for the presidency. Um, they've won something like uh, 10 or 15 million more votes for the Senate, depending on how you, how you look at California. Um, so th throughout this century, there has been a clear sort of public majority preference for the Democratic Party. Um, that, has, that has not been translated into control of the court. Um, and then you compound that with the fact that Republicans shrunk the court in 2016 deliberately, right? Um, and what they did with, with uh, Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to the court was also fully constitutional, right? Like they weren't in violation of any specific provision in the constitution, which I can't emphasize enough is a very vague document that you can read on your lunch break. Um, it does not spell out a lot of these procedures. Um, so anyway, that's a long way of saying that I think that we have, um, we have a Supreme Court majority right now that represents a political minority. Um, and that uh, that Supreme Court majority is working hand in hand with the political minority um, to issue decisions that enhance or preserve its power. And working in a decisively partisan way. Right. Exactly. There's not um, much pretense anymore. I mean, no. I mean, and this this goes back to Bush v. Gore, right? I mean, it's like you, you have you have a conservative majority on the court that, in almost every instance that it can, um, when political questions come or when when uh, uh, things come before the court that have political impact. They rule for they rule in favor of the thing that would benefit the Republican Party the most, <laughs> so <laughs> almost without exception. Here's my first question with this, and for the life of this, I can't wrap my head around it. Is the sort of like Obama Biden wing of the party, which is obsessed with compromise and civility and consensus, and my friends across the aisle, right? And they will come down hard on the left of their party whenever they're violating that sort of cherished and hallowed bipartisanship, right? If the goal is that, and the goal is like, preserve norms before you force a partisan agenda, if that's the goal, then why when the Merrick Garland thing happened, which for people who didn't follow that, the Republicans essentially refused to um, even consider Obama's appointee, held that seat open for a year until Trump was elected and then filled it, um, that's as big a violation of norms and civility and compromise 
as we've really seen since Bush versus Gore, maybe something like that. And yet there was really, they just took it. Now, I've heard some debate about is there anything Obama could have constitutionally done? Could he have done a recess appointment, whatever? I don't know about that. I'm not an expert. But even assuming there's nothing he could have done, if that had happened to the Republicans, they would have been on TV every day slamming the legitimacy of it. They would have made it a big part of the um, the next election. They would have been every day questioning the legitimacy, and in some ways correctly so, right, of yeah. any Democrat who supported that. And I just find it so baffling that, like, and they would have plans to retaliate. And I find it so baffling that this this centre of the Democratic Party that's so obsessed with civility and norm observance and will call out their own party for it just couldn't find the spine to call out the other party for it. And I think in doing so, set the message that you can do stuff like this and we won't retaliate. We won't even behave in kind. And so you've just created the incentive for the other side to keep doing it because they know they can do it without consequence and gained nothing by... You haven't exchanged that loss of ground for anything. You've just willingly given up ground. I find it absolutely maddening. And I've never heard a coherent explanation of why they behaved that way. No, it's 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 really... it's. It's staggering. I mean, like my kingdom for one of the presidential candidates to just to next time a Supreme Court question gets asked to say something like Republicans stole a Supreme Court seat and we're going to get it back. You know what I mean? Like to, you don't have to get specific, right? But like um, they don't even say them. They, they don't talk about Merrick Garland. They barely talk about this at all. Um, the fact that Republicans stole this one seat on, on the United States Supreme Court, um, and it's and it's really it's really maddening. Um, and I, and I think it I think it points to the necessity of starting to threaten something like court packing, uh, at least to bring the other side of the table, or at least to, to make them think that there might be consequences for the things that they're doing. Because from the Republican perspective, you know, if you were, if you're Mitch McConnell, um, and you're watching the Democratic primary unfold, um, and you're, you're listening to how Democrats are talking about um, things like compromise, and, and you're listening to them talk about the Supreme Court, I'm somewhere between either, yeah, either not being intimidated at all or pinching my chubby little flanks as I chuckle with glee. Like, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, like, it's, I'm it's just like not, a best case scenario for him. You know, he, he stole the just seat not and there's no consequences. I'll probably still be Senate leader, and even if I'm not, they're not going to do anything. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, if you take a step back from just the, the, from the stolen seat, and you take a step back from the from Kavanaugh and all the battles about the court, um, you you do come back to a sort of American exceptionalism or, or American unusualness about the importance of the court in our system, um, the way that those appointments are made and structured, um, and there's a very obvious compromise here um, in terms of how to eliminate this. Uh, uh, this ugliness from our politics altogether, um, and that's to pass a constitutional amendment to eliminate lifetime tenure on the courts and to give each president the right to appoint a certain number of judges during their terms. Um, and so I've always said, um, like before Democrats do pack the courts, and again, we're, we're sort of in fantasy world here, right, because I don't, 
I don't think this is much likelier than, than Medicare for all <laughs> passing a, a Democratic Congress. Um, I just I don't think we've arrived at the point in our politics where there's enough Democrats who, who take this idea, idea seriously that they would actually vote for it. But if we ever do come to that point, I do think that you have to offer the other side a compromise and say, like, let's, you know, like we're going to pack the courts or, um, you know, we can put a, a, an amendment through. Um, you know, through through Congress and through the states in a certain time frame, um, that would give each president the right to appoint two justices for each four-year term, um, cap service at 18 years, um, and and then you no longer you know it wouldn't eliminate all battles over this, but you could also spell out in that amendment the Senate's advice and consent obligations. Um, you know, you could say you can reject X number of, of judges, but then you know, the threshold for confirming them goes down. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of ideas out there about how you could structure this. But the bottom line is, like, um, I think the Democrats have to be seen as as first offering compromise to Republicans. Um, I think, that's you know, like there's a, almost that's certainly... That's like a sort of tactical thing, though. I don't... You, the yeah, Republicans no, aren't going for this, right? No, there's no way. I mean, even though it really would be in their interest to go for it, but um, but they won't because they're ideologues and they're sort of blinded by partisanship at this point. Um, and they think that there's some inherent... Um, there's some inherent good in the idea of lifetime tenure on the courts. Um, I've, heard, I've heard conservatives argue that the framers, this is what they wanted, of course, that that's the only way to insulate them from politics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's just, again, it's just a practice that you really don't find anywhere else in the world that's that's just, just sort of on its face absurd. Um, but, you know, if that's the world we live in, and I feel like um, uh, we'll never bring Republicans to the table to resolve this problem if we don't threaten them with escalation, right? And so, I, you know, my, my thing has always been like the next Democratic president um, should be like, look, you know, you have three months to pass the amendment or, you know, Gorsuch can resign uh, or we're going to do this, you know. Um, just, just play hardball, you know, like there's nothing stopping us. There's nothing, you can't even make a constitutional argument against court packing, right? It just doesn't exist. Um, there's, there's not a legal scholar in the world that would say that Democrats couldn't expand the court legally if they wanted to. Um, and I think that the next democratic government in DC is going to find, uh, just to return to what you were saying earlier, um, not just, not just sort of new policies, but that this court, especially at Ginsburg gets replaced. Um, this court is going to be hostile to to existing policies. You know, uh, we're we're one vote away from 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 overturning Obamacare, right? Like there are a lot of conservative legal scholars that think um, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are all unconstitutional, um, and, and would return us to like this this Lochner era of, uh, of unfettered capitalism, <laughs> um, and would 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 willingly and would like be happy to shred the entire social safety net. Um, and I think. We're not there yet, um, but a couple more Trump appointments, you know, drawn from a Federalist Society list, we, we would be there, you know. So it's really not just about playing offense in terms of, like, uh, the, court would spec- the court would strike down Medicare for all or the court would strike down the wealth tax, right? It's like things that we take for granted now, I think, are, are, are in a great lot of environmental protections, a lot of regulatory protections are in danger from the current court. Yeah, I mean, so... Um, uh, Ian Milheiser, who was at Think Progress and is now writes for Fox, um, ha- has done some great work on sort of Republican plans for re- reigning in the administrative state. You know, like um, depriving the EPA uh, of issuing um, specific regulations. You know, on, on its own, right? like you feel like Congress would have to change the law in order for for some of these executive agencies to do anything. And, and the long term plan there is really to to cripple. Um, the next, uh, the next Democratic presidency or the next Democratic government um, from being able to implement any of its policy goals, right? So you'll thwart them on one end 
um, with Supreme Court decisions about major policies that come out of Congress, and then you, you thwart them on the other by, by radically reining in um, power of executive agencies to, to act independently or to, to update their policies based on unfolding events. Um, and that, um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that anyone really understands the, the gravity of that situation. <laughs> so, um, so let me. I just um, slammed the sort of consensus-driven centre of the Democratic Party, and I'll do it again. Let me now slam the sort of um, Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. And if it sounds like I'm just being difficult to everyone, it's not that there's an <laughs> ideological side that I'm not more sympathetic to in terms of. Uh, policy agenda or underlying values, I'm more sympathetic to the Sanders side. It's just the narrative that's emerging from both sides is internally incoherent, like it doesn't make sense by itself. So what Bernie Sanders supporters say to me when I say, but like, you know, like I think Warren sort of gets this a bit more, is they say, oh, well, um, she wants to work within the system. Bernie's going to, like, really just overturn it. And I'm like, great, that's what I want to hear, right? And I'm like, cool, so what do you mean by that? And it turns out what they mean is sort of like, use the bully pulpit, go round the states, put pressure on senators to vote your way. Well, that's not overturning the system, that's just standard 101 American politics that you're saying your guy is going to do more effectively, which, like, fine, cool, nothing against that. But then if you say to them, okay, what would you be, what's your candidate willing to do to get this done? Um, and it's not like he, he won't pack the courts, because none of them will do that. It's that, like, he wouldn't, he's against even abolishing the filibuster. And they say, oh, well, we'll do it with this budget reconciliation thing, and da da da. And like, sure, that's a story you can tell. But like, number one, I don't think you're factoring in to your theory of change um, how big a roadblock even the current Supreme Court will be. And two, I find it this weird thing that like, Bernie has to be our guy because he's uniquely radical and will smash the system, but he's actually against even very mild norm changes, like removing the filibuster. And I don't... I get in trouble because a lot of my fans really like Bernie and every time, you know, they're very passionate about it and every time I say something critical. So I'm not, like, saying he's a bad guy or I disagree with what he's trying to do. I'm saying the story you're telling me from how we get from A to B doesn't make sense. I'll pause there. No, I, I know. I, I, I agree. I mean, I, you know, for me, I, in this primary, I'm like Warren and Sanders all day long before the rest of these characters, you know. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that anybody really understands the structural obstacles to progressive power and progressive policymaking. And, and it's, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book um, in the sense that I think that there's a danger of getting way too far in the weeds about policy differences without addressing some of the structural barriers um, to, to progressive change in, in the long term. And so to me, um, you know, D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood and, um, you know, like bringing in a, a ranked choice voting in the House and, and reforming the pack in the courts, um, you know, voting rights, uh, you know, new voting rights act, these things are as important, if not more important than getting bogged down early in a presidency, um, trying to pass Medicare for all, you know, like to me, the, the, the structural institutional reform agenda, that's the day, that's the day one agenda for the next democratic government. Like you have to do these things. 
um, even if we miracle our way into the presidency and a Senate majority next year, um, you know, you've got you've got 18 months. The the, the clock starts ticking. Um, we'll have a very fragile Senate majority, and if we don't reinforce it, um, I think that we would be likely to lose the House and the Senate back to Republicans in 2022. That's just the way our politics has been working. Um, and so you, you you have to address some of these problems because, um, you, you know, if you look at if you just look at voting rights, right? I mean, like there's a number of states where. You know, I think Democrats would would be winning elections that they're currently losing um, because the laws are are stacked against them, or being abused by Republican secretaries of state, or you know, being reinforced by the Supreme Court. Um, and so these these issues are all tied together, right? Like the the court is tied to voting rights, which is tied to progressive politics and progress um, in ways that I don't hear any of the candidates talking about, or that I'm convinced that they really understand at a, at a basic level. Yeah, I mean. Okay, let me let me put the count because what they will say, what what I've heard Sanders say, in fact, is first of all, completely agree. I think we've created a constituency within the Democratic Party where there's now enough of us saying we want a robustly progressive voice, um, that politicians are marketing themselves to that. Right? Um, I think that. The, our litmus test is wrong. Our litmus test is not does your Medicare for All plan include all these features. The litmus test is how willing to violate norms and be procedurally disruptive are you in order to get it done. And, like, you want to talk about, like, smashing the system, great. You want to say the system is broken, it bloody is. Um, but then, then nominate someone who wants to change the system. I'll put it another way. What Sanders could do to get my vote from Warren would be to sign on to some of the stuff that we've been talking about. I, I sort of, you know, I've followed Warren since she was in the um, Consumer Protection Bureau. I like her. She's my candidate. But if Sanders came out and said, we're adding states and we're packing the court, that's a pretty persuasive argument for me, you know? Um, but anyway, what they will say... No, I, I completely agree, yeah. <laughs> um... I mean, what they will say is retaliation. They'll say, oh, we don't... I've heard Sanders say this, actually. We don't want to remove the filibuster because then the next time the Republicans get in, that'll open us up to whatever. Same goes for the Supreme Court. If, I, if we add justices, then the next time they're in power, they'll add justices. Um, I mean, I have my response to that, but what do you say to that? I, I mean, you know, I have a few different responses to this. Um... One is to say, you know, we, we are already living through a period of, of one-sided escalation, right, um, where Republicans proved they were willing to engage in manipulation of the size of the court to preserve their political interests. Um, I have no confidence whatsoever that, um, that you know, if somehow we got a liberal majority on the, on the court in this next presidency, uh, and then a Republican won in 2024, and they took, they took the government over again, that they wouldn't simply pack the court. But I'm actually pretty confident that they would. Um, we haven't actually had to think about that because they haven't had to pack the court because they've controlled it for 40 years. But there's no question in my mind that this Republican Party would do that. Um, the other thing is to, you know, people are like, well, they would just do it back and then we'd do it back to them. And I'm like, well, I, I don't, I'm not seeing really how that's not preferable to what we have today. You know, right. like, we'd at right, least like control we, it half the time. Right. I mean, if you have a court that's controlled by the political, like the political majority that's in Congress, well, at least that's better than having the court controlled by a political majority, I mean, political minority that has not controlled a majority of votes in American politics for 30 years, right? Like in every conceivable way, the setup that we have now 
um, where Republicans conceivably could rule over this court for, for 15 or 20 years until Clarence Thomas dies um, or one of the other justices steps aside. Um, you, you know, you have a long, you will have a long dead conservative minority sort of lording it over American politics and society for 20 or 30 years. Uh, and, and to make it worse, right? Like that majority was obtained, um, you know, with, with a massive violation of, of the spirit of the constitution and the norms of our politics. Um, and so I just don't understand, like I would, I would vastly prefer tit for tat court packing <laughs> to the situation that we have today. I think it's just completely untenable. Um, and so I, I just, I'm not persuaded by the fear of retaliation. I, I also, I also really believe that Republicans won't change um, until they experience the other end of some of these things, um, that, you know, until they see what it's like um, to have a, a Democratic majority sort of setting aside the filibuster to pass legislation with, with 50 votes in the Senate, um, or, you know, 51 with the vice president, whatever, whatever the setup is, is going to be. Um, but then they'll be like, oh, okay, I see what this is like. The, and the, the last thing I'll say about this, um, this comes back to, to sort of Bernie Sanders and the filibuster, um, is the filibuster is, a, is an atrocious institution in its own right. Um, and whether, whether it's benefiting Democrats or whether it's benefiting Republicans at any given time should not blind us to the fact that there is no other legislature on the face of the earth um, that, that has supermajority requirements to pass routine legislation. Right? Like the whole thing is like a, is like a vehicle to thwart um, the spirit of democracy to thwart, um, you know, sort of simple majority rule. Um, and I, I just don't understand why anybody uh, could possibly defend this institution, which, you know, for most of its, its modern history has been used to, to, to thwart progress, um, to, to go out and say, like, the filibuster is a, is a useful thing because someday we might need it again, right? As if Republicans wouldn't simply abolish the filibuster if they thought there was something important enough that they could get done by abolishing it in the future. Um, and so I, I just, I find these arguments to be, uh, you know, they make sense on their own, own terms. I understand why people think these things and I understand why that's their first response. Um, and so I don't want to be like overly harsh, uh, because I hear this a lot, um, even from, from pretty rabid democratic partisans who are afraid of escalation. Um, but, but to me, we're, we're really in a, in a crisis situation here. Um, and I think it's made worse by the fact that Republican, the Republican Party itself has been transformed into this, like, sort of, you know, I don't want to say authoritarian, but, like... I would, authoritarian. I would say authoritarian. Yeah. You know, they're anti-majoritarian. Um, they're willing to use, sort of, any constitutional power at their disposal to make it, you know, harder for people to vote, <laughs> for instance. Um, and uh, I think that we're, we're in danger of, of, of our... Our democracies are collapsing into illiberalism, um, we're, but I, I couldn't emphasize enough that we're in we're in the middle of that process, right? Like if you look at the the, the U.S.'s Freedom House score on democracy, it has gone down in the last ten years, and it's going to continue to go down um, as long as we allow the Republican Party to kind of set the agenda um, for this country. And so, um, it's not just about Medicare for all. Um, to me, it's about um, sort of restoring balance in our democracy such that um, a majority of the country believes that the, that our practices and our institutions are legitimate. Yeah, and let me add a couple... I mean, I agree with everything that you've just said. Um, let me add a couple of points to that, which is um, um, democratic alternation benefits the left. So you see a consistent pattern amongst all big democracies 
in that big reforms like healthcare for all can be scary and unpopular or scary and like unknown before they're done but once you do them they're very 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 difficult to get rid of like so the nhs in the uk the tories could never get rid of that they couldn't even propose it you know and if you look at social security medicaid in um the us you know, they were fought tooth and nail at the time, but once they're done, you're kind of stuck with them, because once people get used to them, they're like, yeah, this is amazing, why would we ever give it up, right? And so, even accepting a state where the Republicans can do whatever they want when they back get in, I say, yeah, that doesn't, I don't think that's as scary as you think it is, because if the converse is we, we can pass whatever we want, what we pass will be more enduring than what they pass, and it's still a long run win for us. The next point is this point I keep returning to, but I'm sort of convinced I'm right about coherence, in that we have a set of parliamentary assumptions working in our politics, and one of them is, you know, if you have two teams, if you have national agendas, and you have people assessing parties on implementing a national agenda, what has to go with that for it to make sense is that big national elections produce majorities that are capable of legislating. Because right now, the contradiction is, Americans keep on electing politicians who say we'll do X, Y, and Z. They elect them, X, Y, and Z don't happen, and they get frustrated and vote in the other party. But it, it's it's not that it's just Washington is broken, although it is. It's, it's not that both sides are as bad as the other. It's that one side has decided to dig its heels in so profoundly that nothing is really possible. And Pete Buttigieg said this thing in the debates, I forget which one, which infuriated me. He said, look, this is why, to Warren, I think, this is why people hate Democrats. You promise all this stuff, and then it doesn't happen. Well, yes, it doesn't happen, not because any failings of the Democrats or because they don't believe in what they're saying. It doesn't happen because half of our political system is insane and we have a million veto points, you know? (laughs) So, like, if you want to have this two-teams political culture, which we clearly do, that is incongruent with a political system designed to stall out and not produce consensuses. So it makes sense with how we're thinking about politics, and I think will ultimately benefit the left to have tit-for-tat retaliation, or just as you call it in Europe, democratic alternation, you know? Yeah, no, no I absolutely agree. And I, and I think that it, it is, I mean, it's so important to think of the Constitution itself as the sort of as a sort of prison that we are all trapped in, <laughs> um, and that we, you know, we can't actually construct a political system that would be as responsive um, to uh, to temporary political majorities as I think that, that you and I would like it to be. Um, but what Democrats can do um, is they can make changes, you know, within the Constitution, you know, like the, that are fully constitutional, um, that would make the system more responsive to political majorities and and less able to be sort of gummed up by a, by a political party um, that wants to that wants to stop anything from happening at all. So my right? and that, yeah, go, go yeah. ahead. No, I mean, so that's, you know, like you, you, you bring in ranked choice voting to the House and you, 
you move from single member districts to, to multi-member districts. And I, I think that, that, would, that would actually do a lot for our politics. Um, and it's, it's fully constitutional. It's within Congress's power. It doesn't involve rewriting the Constitution, right, which, would, which is sort of an impossible task. Um, and so you, you just – I think Democrats have to imagine um, – what they can achieve within the confines of the Constitution and not let the fact that it would be shocking uh, stop them from doing it right? because they have to do some of these things or, or we're really in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Um, so my final question, though, is why are we in this state? Because a lot of the time people on the sort of, you know, progressive left sort of talk about the centre of the party as corrupt or just like as a matter of character, they're weak-willed and so on. And you know, there may well be some truth in that. Um, but at the same time, those people on the far left aren't willing to change institutions and norms. So that kind of seems a bit crazy. And we do have this thing. So I've seen a few different opinion polls on this. Where in the... If you poll people, do you want your representative to um, come to an agreement with other, the other side, or do you want them to fight? It's the inverse with the two parties. So Republicans, like 80%, say, I want my representative to fight. Whereas with Democrats, it's not quite the reverse, but it's like 60% want their representative to compromise. And I've seen slightly different numbers with different polls, but there's a clear pattern, which is Republican voters are much more combat-orientated, and mm -hmm. Democratic voters are much more consensus-orientated. And then if you look at the sort of activist wings of each party, the sort of ideological extremes, the Republicans are very invested in process, and they all know about the Supreme Court, and they're all about playing constitutional hardball, whereas it doesn't even occur to our progressive activists. And so you can sort of ask, what's the tail and what's the dog here? Is it that our party leaders have sort of bought into this sort of ideology of compromise? Or is it, and so we mentioned Joe Biden, does he really mean what he says here? Or is, does he just know that that's what his voters want to hear? Or is it like a bit of a mixture of the both? Um, I, I, I sort of feel like it's a bit of both, right? But like, why has that come about? Why is there such a disparity there? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I don't, I don't think that there's any scholarship that, I, that answers this definitively. Um, what I would say is I, I do think it's a, I do think it comes down in large part to a difference in philosophy between the two parties about the role and value of government itself. Right. Um, so, uh, in order for, for progressives and Democrats to achieve their policy goals, right. It involves, um, uh, uh, a sort of publicly minded government, uh, full of, uh, you know, uh, good hearted, uh, civil servants, um, doing their jobs and, and sort of making society better gradually, uh, by using the power of the state to benefit, you know, either the less well off or to fight inequality or to provide public goods that, that the market won't provide itself. Um, and that's a vision uh, of politics and that's a vision of society, um, that really sort of believes in the potential uh, of, of government, you know, used wisely, um, to, to structure social change, um, in, in the right direction. Um, and, it, and I think that, um, you know, to people who believe in that vision uh, of what our politics could look like, um, the idea, just the very idea of politicians 
sort of digging in their heels and, and, and refusing to compromise to, to pass legislation that might represent a, a modest improvement over the status quo, I think that's sort of repellent to them on a, on a sort of on a basic philosophical level. Um, and, I, and I think um, I think that I think that explains a lot of the delta between the two parties. Where you know the, the Republicans are are, are are full of people and voters and, and elites. Um, who are hostile to the very idea of government, whose who's, who's plan is to get government out of the way, to, you know, in Grover Norquist's words, to drown it in the bathtub, um, to deprive it of agency and power. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not somebody that thinks that government power is like a good thing. And, you know, like uh, under all circumstances, obviously it is not. Um, but I do think that the, the, the philosophy of the Republican Party is like, uh, they don't mind making government look bad, right? Like they don't mind um, taking decisions or, or, or uh you know, depriving particular agencies of, uh, of the, the resources they need to act, um, in the public interest. Like they don't mind that because they're hostile to those agencies to begin with. Like they're hostile to the EPA, they're hostile to the department of education. So of course it makes perfect sense for them, um, to, to, um, to sort of torpedo these institutions because they don't want them in the first place. Um, and so there's sort of the end result of, uh, 30, 40 years of making government look incompetent, um, by refusing any compromise that, that would improve the performance of particular agencies or laws or, or sectors of the economy, um, is that Americans will be more hostile to government and Americans will be less likely to, to vote for parties that, that want to use the government to, to accomplish social goals. Um, and so I think that there's a, there's actually an alignment between the behavior of the Republican party in Congress of the last 20 years and the, and the sort of long run goals uh, of the party itself in terms of the size of government and, and the power of government. Whereas on the left, um, you, you just, you just don't have that alignment between what is probably strategically necessary right now. Um, and, and the long run goals of how, how the Democrats and progressives want to use the government. And it, it's on both sides because they've, they've managed to be so toxic and degrade our democracy so much the people on the far left are just sort of like the entire system's broken, which is true in a sense, but what they tend to mean by it is neither the Republicans or Democrats care about me because if they did, something would change. That's not the story. The story is our system is structurally broken. Like, you have a machine that's set up to build one thing, and you, you expect it to build the other thing, and it doesn't build the other thing. And so you say it's a bad machine, it's a corrupt machine, it's a wicked machine. And it's not. The machine's doing what it's designed to do. You want it to do something else, you've got to change the machine, you know? Yeah, I mean, and that's why it's not enough to put other people in charge of this machine. Right. <laughs> right? Um, you have to change the, the sort of the operating processes of the machine. Right. Um, and so, and that's, that's where I still, you know, I still don't quite see enough recognition of that. I don't um, really see any. Um, and there's, there's this thing of like, our, our voters, that's what troubles me. It's not that our politicians don't get it because we can change them. It's that our voters don't. And in a sense, all Joe Biden is doing is he is being democratically responsive, right? Right. If a majority right. of his, never mind general electorate, if a majority of his primary electorate wants to hear, look, I'm going to do everything I can to get on with the other fella, um, 
he's just telling the giving the voters what they want and if a majority of trump's electorate wants to hear i am going to be the most combative person a human being could possibly be he's just giving them what they want like in a sense this is democracy at work right like there's something that's gone wrong with um like the sort of center of the democratic electorate that they've convinced themselves that you can compromise your way through this. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think that probably the majority of the people who feel like this are, are older voters, um, and I think older Democrats lived through a long period where, uh, particularly in the '80s and early '90s, where I, I think you, you could legitimately argue that the Demo- Democrats were less popular than Republicans, um, in, in, a, in a sort of majoritarian sense, and that Democrats had to compromise and and sort of hedge their ideas and hedge their bets and, and not make this full-throated case for liberalism. Because I think you can make a pretty good case that, like, you know, so just like Reagan's policies were more popular from, like, 1980 to, I don't know, 2000 or something. Um, and I think there's a lot of people, particularly people over the age of about 40 or so, um, who, who think that we still live in that universe. Um, and and Bill, that, Clinton, that Bill Clinton did generally win and do some good stuff. No, of course, yeah. Whereas with Obama, he won while compromising. I'm not sure he won by compromising, and I'm not sure what it really got him. No, I I mean, I think that, I think, you know, I think that there were some structural constraints early in the Obama administration that there was just no way around. I I also think that Obama himself um, believed that Republicans would come around, um, and and it it actually points back to your your original question, um, which is I think that there's a, and I think this is true that even the sort of the far left too, is that there's a there's a kind of a naive um, belief in the power of our ideas um, that that people that people will just automatically like that we can yes. convince people that yes. there's like more persuadable Republican elites and more persuadable Republican voters than there actually are, um, and it, it reminds me of. So my favorite movie in, 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 in all of history is called Big Night, um, and it's about uh, these two Italian immigrant brothers who, who open a, a restaurant at the Jersey Shore, um, and, the, and, the, and the one brother is like this gourmand, you know, and he, sis, he insists on making this very intricate food, and nobody comes to the restaurant. They all go to this, like, you know, uh, TGI Friday's place down the street, you know, and, it, and, it, and at one point he says to his brother, you know, pe- people should come just for the food, right? <laughs> And the other ones, the other guys who said, well, they don't, you know, they don't come just for the food um, in the same way that voters are not just going to come for our, our ideas. Right. Like we have to be engaged um, in other aspects of, of the political system and, and recognize that, um, that that simply passing laws or advocating laws is, is not necessarily going to win us the next election. You know, mm. So let me let me summarize that because that was useful. Here's the two stories I got out of that. The first story is a generational story, whereas older um, older Democratic voters grew up in an era of like Reagan and Bill Clinton, wherein mm-hmm. being compromise driven was a winning political strategy and still made some sense because we were still on the sort of tail end of that more congressional consensus type of politics, right? And they certainly grew up with parents who were very much embedded within that worldview. And they're just applying what they've been sort of acclimated to, to a social and political world 
that no longer matches up with it. So they're just it's just like a generational carryover. That's story number one. Story number two is we have a naive faith in our ideas. So at the politician level, Obama really believed if I take this heritage plan that Mitt Romney did in Massachusetts and I make that the thing, Republicans will see that I'm sort of meeting them where I'm at, then I'm taking their ideas. And of course they won't. But at the same time, there's this view among, like, the progressive left that if we just run a strong enough progressive, then these, you know, Appalachian voters, or, you know, whatever, right, will will right. see <laughs> that we're offering them something that really, really benefits them, and the only reason they haven't come over to us yet is they've been put off by all those corporate Democrats, but if we really want run on what we believe in, then then surely they'll come over, and both of those would be incredibly reassuring things to believe. Um, they're, they're things to believe that line up with our worldview assumptions, and it would be it, they're incredibly. It would be incredibly comforting if they were true. It's just there's very little evidence that either of those narratives is true at all. No, there's not. I mean, there's there's particularly not a lot of political science research <laughs> that suggests any of those things are true. Um, I mean, it turns out, you know, most of the people who are most persuadable between elections are the people that pay the least attention to politics, you know, and it's like they wake up in like October of an election year and they start paying attention and, you know, they don't connect, you know, your, your policies from three years ago with their interests on that given day. I mean, if they did, there's no way that, that Hillary Clinton, Clinton could have lost Michigan, right? Um, when, when Obama had, had rescued the auto industry in this country uh, and saved hundreds of thousands of jobs across the Midwest. Um, and then four years later, right, the standard bearer of that party, the party that like literally saved the Midwest from economic ruin in a lot of ways, uh, would then give their votes en masse to, to Donald Trump. It's just, it's just like, it's irreconcilable with the theory of politics that has everyone kind of sitting around with a, with a list of, you know, like, what is the, you know, what have the Democrats done for me? Okay, they did this, this, and this. So what are Republicans offering? Oh, oh, I see. I'm going to make this an like, informed decision. And I'm not calling people stupid, right? Like, people have other things going on, um, and particularly uh, in, in this country, right? Like, if you're not wealthy, every day is a struggle. Right? Like, you may not have time to, like, you know, read a Vox explainer of, of the policies that are being offered to you. So I'm really not laying this at the feet of the voters. Um, but what I am saying is that, um, that people don't respond to policy in the, in the way that we, that, that we hope that they would, um, they, they respond to the, the results of the policies themselves. Like, as you were saying earlier, like we, you know, if we had the NHS, we could never get rid of it. Um, but they wouldn't necessarily connect the NHS to Democrats if Democrats brought it into being, you know what I mean? Right. And that goes uh, for both sides of the aisle, right? It goes for, I'm, I'm going to do some work on like why both the center and the sort of left have been leading left-wing parties to defeat. Um, but it goes for both sides. Like, if you really... A lot of people say, oh, if the Democrats just moderated on policy, if they met these swing voters in the middle, then they'd just win. And some people say, no, people are put off by corporatists in, in the middle, and if we just go farther left, then we'll win. And it's like, all I hear is, if people just said what I want to hear, they'd win. And it's kind of like this disconnect yeah. both sides <laughs> have in that, like... Just because you want it to be true, it doesn't make it true. And actually, like you say, people don't, not all people, but a lot of people just don't look at policy that closely in either sense. No, and I think it's really important to remember that, like, 
in, in our elections and given the dynamics of partisanship, um, actually the moderates are the people most likely to be defeated in a wave election, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, if you go back to 2014 and you look at all the Senate Democrats who, you know, uh, you know, voted against aspects of, of the Affordable Care Act or were the most moderate members of Congress, like they all got wiped out, you know, like to a, to a person. Although that's um, not necessarily because they're moderates, it's because those were the people who were like in Montana and so on. And right, it's right. like, it's not that they lost because they were moderates, it's that no, no, no. In, a, in an age of extreme partisanship, moderation will not save you if you have the D next to your name. So you might right. as well be a party-line <laughs> yeah. vote, you know? If you, yeah, if the political dynamics are moving against your party um, and you're in one of these marginal seats, there's almost nothing you can do to save yourself, you know? Um, it, you know, like Heidi Heitkamp was one of the most moderate members of the Senate, right? Um, so was Joe Donnelly. So was Claire McCaskill. Um, and it didn't do it didn't do anything for them last year. Even in, I guess that was two well, years just, ago. You'd be a good politician. So I just interviewed um, Sherrod Brown, who holds down Ohio. And he's like a sort of center of the party. I wouldn't call him like a socialist or anything, but like he's quite progressive. Yeah. Um, but he's just like a good fit for that district. You know, like I think he will be, he's a good campaigner. He's quite personable. He sort of like fits in to just sort of the general culture of Ohio. Just you're good at the sort of technocratic art of politics. You're good at like meeting people and talking to people and getting on with them. Like that, like there's this big debate on like whether like the center or the left is the one that's going to like help us beat Trump. But honestly, just having, you know, I'll take someone who's a good campaigner any day over, like, a particular ideology, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I don't think that, I mean, I think a moderate or a progressive could win this election. Hmm. Um, I, I think it's going to come down to a lot of other dynamics, um, some of which are particular to the candidate, um, some of which are just out of anybody's hands in terms of what's happening nationally with, with the economy. Um, but I don't think that there's a, a particular mix of, of policy platforms that will magically unlock the kingdom to 270 votes in the Electoral College. No. No. All right. Should we, um, should we, should we wrap that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, that, I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> cool. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Professor. Um, just before you go, is there anywhere... The book is just called Fighting Dirty, right? Um, uh, yeah, it's called it's, it's Time to Fight Dirty. Oh, um, it's Time to Fight so, Dirty, my yeah. bad. Uh, no, it's okay. <laughs> um, so is there anywhere beyond that you'd like to send listeners to go? A website, Twitter handle, um, your podcast that you do? Uh, yeah, so my, my Twitter is at David M. Ferris. Um, and uh, so, you know, I invite your listeners to, to join me there. Um, my own podcast is on a little bit of a hiatus right now, so I don't know if I want to lead you there. Um, but but definitely follow me on Twitter and, uh, and buy the book. I've got another book coming out this year uh, about young voters called uh, The Kids Are All Left. Um, so, so please keep an eye out for that. It should be out in June or July. Cool. Um, I, um, yeah, I definitely appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This was, this was great. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. As I mentioned in the introduction, this is going to be the last episode for a little bit doing contemporary American politics. I feel like we've been on that for a bit long, and it is the Political Philosophy Podcast. So I've got some really great interviews lined up 
on more, more sort of traditional history of political thought and like political philosophy questions. So coming up, I have an interview with the Penn Award-winning author Nancy Prinzenthal, and we talk about second-wave feminism, and particularly how second-wave fem- feminism started talking about issues of sexual violence and rape. And it's just a really interesting history of how we came to our current moment in thinking about these issues in popular culture and in our current culture wars. I have an interview following that with the great um, leftist Samuel Moyne, and we talk about human rights and to the extent to which human rights can reinforce or cut against concerns about equality. I also have a great interview on Thomas Hobbes. So a couple of months back, I asked Twitter and Facebook, you know, I haven't ever covered Hobbes on the podcast, who would be who would be a good guest to have on? And those, you know, different answers, but by far and away, the name that kept coming up on both platforms was Arash Abizadeh, and I was able to get him on, and really, he explained it to me in a way that I felt like I hadn't really properly gotten my head around Hobbes before, so that was super useful to me, and I hope it will be for you as well. And then coming up this week, as of me recording this, I have a couple of more fairly prominent political philosophers coming on. So there's a whole batch of like really good history of political thought and political philosophy interviews coming up. And I think depending on interest and sort of motivation and the questions I get, I'll probably mix in um, a solo episode or two in there, and then I think I am increasingly leaning towards finally putting together another big solo series, which I've done a bunch of polling, and I'm sort of, between that and, like, just what I want to say on the podcast, I'm settling towards doing the conservative revolution as a sort of sequel to my libertarianism series. I'm just, to be honest kind of daunted by the amount of work that it's going to be because those big series are like it's like writing a book with I guess the quasi bonus that you don't have to do the footnotes but it's it, it's a lot so anyway that's what's coming up it's really cool um this this period on the podcast has been really good and I hope you've been enjoying it um if you've got to this point, please do support us. So if you've listened through all of this, please give this episode a share. All of the growth we've seen on this podcast has been organic, just through people sharing it on their own social media, forwarding it to friends, recommending it, stuff like that. So, you know, if you have any sort of social media account at all, please do hit that share button so we can keep on going out there. If you're able to support in a more monetary way, we have a Patreon account. It's just patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. And the way I've been putting this is if this episode was as invigorating and energizing as a cup of coffee, or for that matter, as bitter and unpalatable as a cup of coffee, consider sponsoring it on that basis. I live in New York where coffee is a couple of dollars, a couple of bucks, however you want to say it, a cup. So if you can chip in a couple of bucks an episode, that would be terrific. We don't do any advertising. We don't have any sponsors. All of the costs associated with the podcast are covered directly by listeners, which is really amazing and I'm incredibly grateful for. And we 
seen some really good growth then. Um, I was just looking at my email this morning and we had three more Patreons, so thanks so much for that, um, everyone. And so yeah, if you are able to do that, please do so. As always, for all the episodes, links, social media, whatever, it's just politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So please do follow us on social media, subscribe on iTunes, your um, various podcast apps that you use. Um, I think I've been using CastBox recently, but there's like a bunch of them. So yeah, please do follow, and I hope you'll stay tuned. We've got some really, like, really great stuff coming up. So yeah. Apart from that, let's wrap. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Mm-hmm.